We are going to jump into our series. Um, we, we started last week, um, Jesus According to John. It, we're looking at the, the, the gospel, the biography of, of, of John, the gospel of John. Uh, last week, we looked at the opening verses of John and kind of did some, some groundwork for, for what this book is. Um, talked about how like the unlike the other gospels that that this uh, that focus on Jesus birth John takes a, a, in his introduction takes kind of a, a cosmic approach to, to Jesus and, and and talks to us about uh, uses the term the word to, to, to refer to Jesus and how how that was actually grabbed out of the, the Greek culture it wasn't a it wasn't an Old Testament word it wasn't it wasn't a Jewish word it was this this kind of cultural idea that the logos was the unifying truth that behind everything. And, and John uses that to explain um, and to kind of refer to, to who Jesus is. That, that he is more than, than, than just, uh, the, he's prepping them. He's trying to help them see that Jesus is more than just the savior that they wanted. That Jesus is the savior that they needed. They needed somebody bigger than they thought. And, and Jesus was that person. In the second half of the chapter of John, um, he seems like he's kind of racing through Jesus' early life. He doesn't, like, unlike the other Gospels, he, he doesn't really mention much about his, anything about his childhood. Um, he, he skips those stories altogether. He covers uh, John the Baptist's kind of announcement of Jesus Messiah is where he begins. Kind of the beginning, which we consider the beginning of Jesus' ministry here on earth. Um, and then he quickly covers the, the, the calling of the disciples. It's like seven verses. He just kind of like, it's almost like perfunctory. Like he just had to get him in there just so we know who he was talking about. He's like, and, he, and he's just these two brothers and this guy and this guy. And he calls us all together. And, and I think there's, um, I don't want to belabor this point because this isn't the main thing I want to talk about today. But I think that there's a powerful message even in that. And I'm not 100% sure if that was John's intention or not. Um, but I think it's worth noting that uh, you can't go away from verses like that uh, or that section or even the other, the other verses, the way they describe the disciples, with any other conclusion than, um, you know, the disciples were the people that Jesus called that he was going to entrust the expansion of the church. I mean, I don't know if there's a, 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 ever a more important job that, that God has trusted to a group of, of people. Um, I also don't know if there's another group of people that it seems like he, he put less effort into picking the people. When you read, especially John's account, it just seems like he just kind of like, okay, it's time to start. Uh, okay, you two, you two, you two, you, you two, you two. Come on, we're, we're going to do this thing. And, and I think that some of that might be intentional because the truth is there wasn't anything special about the disciples except one thing. And that's that they spent three years next to Jesus. And that's really all that mattered. It wasn't about their gifting. It wasn't about their, their upbringing. It wasn't about their special skills or their faith. It was, it was almost exclusively about the fact that, that they said yes and they stood and they were with Jesus for three years. And I think that can be a very powerful um, truth in our lives if we'll look at our lives that way you know sometimes it's so easy to look at our lives and and feel small and insignificant and ill-equipped 
But we can look at the disciples and go, yeah, and so were they. And the, the only difference is they spent three years with Jesus. And we can do that too. We can, we can spend our life with Jesus and allow him to transform us and use us in significant ways. Um, that's not the message I wanted to preach this morning, but just it was there as I was walking through, so we had, we had to touch on it. <laughs> when I read, uh, read John, like I say, you can, you, can, you can see him just trying to get to Jesus, right? He's just trying to get to, okay, let's talk about Jesus. And we see that in chapter two. He gives us, he starts sharing with us about Jesus. He gets into this, and that's gonna be our text for today, John chapter two. And in John 2, he gives us two very different stories about Jesus. So different that you would never really, if you didn't know the stories, and someone just came up to you and told you two, these two stories, about, um, you would not assume, you would never guess that the two stories were about the same person. They're very different. In fact, the only thing that these two stories have in common have in common is that they both confront us, the reader, with an aspect of who Jesus is. It's really the only two things about this story that, that are similar. And so we're going to see today, I mentioned last week, that, that John, throughout the book, is going to confront us with Jesus. That's the, that's the primary, uh, a primary focus of the book, is, is John is revealing who the real Jesus is to us. And we're going to be confronted by who he is. And one of the primary ways John does this over and over throughout the book is he, he shows us both. Um, he likes to hold up the paradox that is Jesus. You know, a paradox, it's two, two like seemingly different opposite, opposite things that are both true at the same time. And, and that, that is, we find that in Jesus a lot. And one of the, one of the key ways that, that we see that is the, in the, the truth of both his divinity and his humanity, right? That, that God was, that Jesus was God and Jesus was man. He wasn't half God and half man. He's not a hybrid. He was all God and all man. And, and, and this is a paradox um, this is something that, that we, as, as if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, uh, it's something that we have to accept, and we have to accept the fact that you don't get it, right? <laughs> Those are two different things. Sometimes we accept the facts, but we think we get it. And the reality is you don't, because we can't, right? There, there are some things that are just too big, and, and, and how God can be all God and all man is one of those, one of those things. But, and John is going to confront us with, with both of these realities of Jesus over and over again. He, he shows us Jesus' divinity throughout the book in kind of two ways is the way the theologians tend to uh, organize it anyway. And, and that's in signs and statements. So throughout the book, you're going to be seeing signs that Jesus does, supernatural uh, actions that he takes that are signs of his divinity, that uh, only, only God could do these things. And then he also, uh, just to make sure we didn't miss the signs, he also makes uh, a number of statements. A number of statements, they're called I am statements. If you know, think back to your Old Testament, what was the, the name that, that, that God introduced himself to his people? I am. And so throughout John, there are a number of times where we're going to see Jesus make that statement kind of in context. 
And kind of like this morning, we were singing about all the different Old Testament covenant names of Jesus, right? Jehovah, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah. In the New Testament, we see kind of that same motif in John where he will throughout the book tell us who he is. So he won't just say I am, but he'll, 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 he'll highlight a, an aspect of his personhood along with it. He'll say, I am the, the, you know, the, the resurrection and the life or the, the, the bread of life or whatever it is. And so we'll see that over and over again. So we have Jesus' divinity that we're going we're gonna to see. And then on the other side, uh, we're, we're gonna, John is really good at, at, at revealing, exposing, confronting us with Jesus' humanity. You're gonna, we're going to see points, we'll see it today, where, where Jesus' human emotions are on full display. And to, to the point where it can be disorienting at times. His, we're going to see his, his human relationships on display. We're going to see his, his dependence on God the Father on display. And it, the, these two things, both true, intention, is, is one of the things that is going to confront us as we, we go through this. We're also going to be confronted with Jesus' perfection. And, and when we talk about perfection in, in Jesus, we're not just talking about the fact that he didn't sin, while that in itself is mind-boggling. Um, perfection, the word, means more than just without sin. It means whole. It means complete. It means total. And never before or since Jesus have we ever seen that in a human. We've never seen a, a whole, complete human where, where they have, um, we see the totality of all that, that humanity should and could have looked like outside of sin. Somebody acting and thinking and feeling with, with zero shame, with, with no fear of anybody else's opinion with complete self-control and complete full access to all of their emotions. Zero selfish ambition. <laughs> that sounds, it sounds amazing, right? Like these are like, as you hear them, you're like, oh yeah, I don't know anything about any of those. Um, <laughs> in that totality. But that's, and, and it sounds great. Like when you read those, you're like, oh, that sounds like a person I'd really want to have coffee with. But the reality is, um, because it's so divorced from our, our own selves and our own, our own experience, when we see that actually play out, it can be confusing. It can be disorienting. It can be jarring. It can be... Um, it can seem not quite right. Like we just don't know really where to put it. And, and, and so we're going to be challenged. We're going to be confronted with these things. And, and the challenge for you and for me is when they come up, I want to encourage us um, to lean into those confrontations when we experience them. Because when it comes to Jesus, um, Three things, I think three truths are, are true about these sorts of moments of confrontation. First one is that confrontation is another word for revelation. When we're confronted with a part of Jesus that, that, that is uncomfortable, we have an opportunity to uh, experience a revelation of a part of him we didn't have yet. Not only is confrontation a revelation, confrontation, it's another word for invitation. Jesus, God, Old Testament, New Testament, 
he doesn't ever reveal himself to somebody without an intention or, or a, a purpose behind it. So if there is a confrontation, we can, we can train ourselves. We need to learn to, 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 to kind of uh, start to begin to see that as, as a good thing. That, that, that this is uncomfortable, but this, this is an invitation. God, 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 what are you doing? This, this doesn't seem comfortable. This seems like you're confronting me on this, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust that that means you're inviting me into something new, something, something deeper. And the third thing is that comes from revelation and invitation is when we accept it, confrontation can be another word for transformation. It's, it's through when Jesus confronts us that transformation happens. Um, uh, things have to, in order for things to change, something has to be different, right? <laughs> and that's really what confrontation is. Um, we're, 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 we're introduced to something that we're, we're not used to. All right, so that's what we're gonna, that's kind of big picture what we're gonna be seeing. And, and, and like I said, we're gonna look at two stories uh, this week that are gonna highlight, highlight that. And, and really, we're gonna be confronted with kind of two different sides of Jesus. Um, but let's pray before we read our, our text for today. Lord, uh, we thank you for, for your presence. God, we've, we've felt you this morning, we've sensed you, we've heard from you. We pray that you've been pleased in our worship, and so we in, invite you um, to, to speak through your word as well. God, we don't want to just learn some new information. God, we give you permission in our, our hearts and our minds to, to grab our attention, to show us what, we, what you want us to see, what we need to see, not just, um, not just what, what, what will make us feel good in this moment, God, but change us. Amen. All right. So John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It's a familiar story. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out, and disciples, uh, or, and during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. And Jesus says to her, dear woman, that's not my problem. It's an interesting phrase, right? Now, it, 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 you know, like a lot of things, it loses something in translation. It's a very warm term he's using. That, that's just, yeah, the translation is a little weird because we would never speak that way to our parents. Um, but but he, he, he has this affection. He says, that's, that's, that's not my problem, Jesus says. My, my time hasn't come yet. Um, which is an interesting phrase. Jesus knew what was, you know, Jesus always knew what was going on. And in this moment, um, they're at a, a wedding feast. The wine had run out, which culturally was a big deal for the, for the, the, the couple, the family that's, that's hosting the wedding. Um, and, and so Jesus' mother turns to him and says, you know, there's a problem. Can you... Can you fix, you know, I need you to you fix this for these, for, for our friends here. Which I had the thought, uh, uh, this is random, has nothing to do with the message, but I had a random thought, so I'm going to make you deal with it too. Um, how did Mary know to ask? Like, this is the first recorded miracle, the first public miracle. She knew, like, obviously there was the angel, the virgin birth. She had some clues, right? Um... <laughs> But one thing we see in the New Testament over and over and over again is that just 
Jews, humanity in general, had no expectation of what the Messiah really was. So why did she, in this moment, even think that Jesus could do this thing, could do anything about the fact that there was no wine? What, was it because, you know, she had seen this movie before? You know, had, had Jesus been doing miracles maybe on the, on the sly <laughs> before this point? And this is just, we don't know. Um, and that has nothing to do with the message, but I just, it came to my thought. I, I like to think about things like that. I think there's, there's some value in, in actually musing about the Bible, you know, thinking about, about the reality of the situation and pondering. We don't have to come up with the answers. It's okay. Not everything needs a black and white answer that we're willing to go to holy war over. Like we can just appreciate the truth of the text and, and, and think about it. Anyway, I've gotten way off topic. So Mary comes to Jesus, says, uh, they're out of wine. He says, my time hasn't come yet. And then uh, I love Mary's response. She, she doesn't, she stops talking to him and then turns and says, but uh, the mo- mother told, told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Um, we don't know what that is here, uh, exactly what this exchange is. Is this, is this Mary kind of submitting to Jesus' authority and saying, you know, I've asked and I'm just going to leave it alone I, whatever you want to do, Jesus, uh, is right? Or is this her doing that mother thing where she's like, I asked you once, you're a good boy, you'll do the right thing. You know, and just kind of like mic drop leaves, trusting that it was going to happen. Again, we don't know. Um, but in any case, she tells the servants to do what Jesus says. And then um, in verse 6, it says, standing nearby were, about, were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could, be, could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. And when the master of ceremonies tasted the water, that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, Though, of course, the servants knew. He, he called the bridegroom over and he said, a host always serves the best wine first, he said. But then everyone, after they have a lot to drink, they bring out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best for now. This miraculous sign, uh, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what a crazy story. You have the God of the universe and his, his, first, his first, you know, public supernatural act is to turn water into wine at a wedding. It seems random. <laughs> he, uh, uh, and, and not a little bit. By estimate, said, you know, each of those things was 20 to 30 gallons. I read one somewhere. It was somewhere like a thousand bottles of wine that Jesus had made. That's, that's, that's a lot of booze, right? <laughs> they were having a party. Um, so, but what does this tell us about Jesus? You know, this, this isn't, if, if you didn't know the story of Jesus, if you didn't know, uh, and, and you had just kind of been told the first part of the story that God loved us and sin and all that. And then, you know, we needed a savior. And so this Jesus was going to, this guy, Jesus is going to come and he's going to do miracles. What do you think the first miracle that Jesus would do is? This would probably not be what you picked, right? (laughs) 
So what do we learn from it? Well, a couple of things, I think. One, this story displays that Jesus is Lord over nature. Right? We're going to see throughout John the different signs that he does. It's in different areas. It's, it's, it's kind of calling his shots over different dominions. And here we see him, him Lord of nature. He is, he is literally changing the atoms and the molecules of water into wine. Something that is impossible in the natural. So that's the first thing, I think, obvious thing that, that we see. We can learn about Jesus here. That he's saying. I think the second thing we learn is that Jesus cares about more than just getting us to heaven. This was not, um, this miracle had no eternal salvific consequences, right? <laughs> no one went to heaven or hell because Jesus did this miracle, presumably, that we, that we can, you know, rationally come to, to a conclusion on. That Jesus cares more about, cares about more than just getting us to heaven. He was in a moment with a, with a group of people and had compassion and, and cared about what was going on, their emotions, the, the, the fact that, that there was shame coming to this family and, and that his mom was, was concerned. And he chose to act supernaturally. He suspended the laws of chemistry and physics because somebody was going to be embarrassed. That's, that, that's a, quite a juxtaposition that we see here. And the third thing I think we can learn is that Jesus is willing to go out of his way to bless us. Presumably for no better reason than he wants to. You know, Jesus puts a little protest at the beginning of this. When Mary asks him to, to do this, he says, my time has not come yet. Why did he say that? Well, because Jesus knew, like, and you'll see this throughout John, he has to be very strategic about revealing this side of him. Because the quicker, the more he does it, the faster it speeds up the pace of the people that are eventually going to want to kill him. And he's got a timing in mind. He's got, he's got worries. He's got an agenda he wants to fulfill. And so, so when he says, my time has not come yet, he's, he's saying, Mary, this, this, this isn't good timing. This is, this is kind of letting the cat out of the bag a little early. But he does it anyway. Why? Because, because he, he wanted to bless the people there. And, 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 and no other reason. There was no other advantage to him. In fact, he, he, goes, he, he does it in a way where he's trying to not, like, you know, not get the credit for it. So how does this confront us? Well, for, for, for some of us, this is easy to, to you know, we're, yes, Lord, that's so beautiful. Um, but for some of us, this isn't, this isn't the easiest side of Jesus to accept, that, that he would waste a miracle on something so frivolous, right? There's no, you know, some of us were very uh, agenda-driven people, very... Very, everything has to have a purpose, and that's kind of the way we see Jesus or the way we see God. And here we see, by all accounts, a very wasteful miracle. Right? There, there wasn't some big payoff, spiritual payoff at the end of it. He did save the wedding. That is true. The people there had a good time. But that's, that can be hard to, to, to accept, that, that Jesus... 
even today, that, that Jesus would, God would choose to do something supernatural that, that didn't have some giant, you know, life and death situation was in the works. But here we see black and white, an account where he does. He confronts us with his selectiveness in this. You know, we can't deny, he did this. But as far as we know, he only did it once, right? The, the, that wedding was the only wedding that we know of that ever had the, the privilege of Chateau de Messiah, right? None of us ever got to taste this. None of the other weddings in Galilee or Cana ever got that. He didn't start some like, you know, uh, holy, holy Messiah wine uh, vineyard or club. It, it was just them right there in that moment. Why? It doesn't, and some of us, we, we struggle with the fairness of God when he chooses to, 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 to especially go above and beyond to bless someone. Or it seems like he's really working hard over here to do this thing for this person in this situation. And, and, and we don't see, we can't picture the why behind it, right? That can be hard for us to accept, and we're confronted with the fact that, that Mary asked him to do something that wasn't on his agenda, but he still did it. And that can be hard, that can be hard for, for, for some of us to accept. That, that, that God, and this, you know, you can go back to the Old Testament and see, see examples of this. That, that, that we see stories of God, God doing things because he was asked not because it was presumably on his agenda to begin with. There's a lot of, I mean, volumes, libraries of books written on explaining how that's possible. And I'm not, I'm not here today to, to, to try and help really explain it other than say that it happens. And we're confronted with that and we're going to, we have, you have to deal with that. Like each of us have to reconcile that in our own way. And some of us need to come to know this side of Jesus, one that, one that doesn't need you to earn his desire to bless you. Say that again, Jesus, you don't need to earn Jesus' desire to bless you. That's not a, that's not a, a bonus that happens when you're a good Christian. God has the heart to bless. That's who he is. Jesus wants to bless us. We need to accept the fact that we have a, Jesus is a person, uh, a Jesus that, that can and will do the impossible on your behalf, not because it will accomplish something for him, but because it will bless you. God, Jesus is willing to act in our lives because it's to your benefit, not just because he gets something out of it. And that's hard to swallow sometimes, hard to accept. A, a Jesus that will do something for somebody else because you asked. This goes to the heart of, you know, we're talking about, we're having that class, we're starting that class on, on, on prayer. Um, and this truth really comes down to the difference of whether a lot of times, for many of us, whether we're, we pray for people or not. Do we, do we, have we been confronted with a Jesus? Do we really accept a Jesus that would do something for somebody just because I asked him to? 
Some of us, we, we struggle for, with that. Some of us struggle with the idea of, of, of even thinking that way because we've seen, we've seen abuse of this idea. We've seen it taken too far. And, um, and, and we've seen people that, that this is the only side of Jesus that they want to talk about. This is the only part of Jesus that, 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 that is true. And anything outside of this is, is, you know, a false gospel or whatever. I mean, it's here to tell you that, that those, those, those people, um, they just stopped reading too soon. Um, because we have this story and while all that stuff is true, we're now going to shift to the next verse. And the next verse is a different story, and it's a different story in every sense of the word. Just one verse later, verse 13, John goes on, and he says, It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem, and in the temple he saw uh, merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves and for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He, he drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor, and he turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold the doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And the disciples remembered this prophecy from Scripture, passion for the Lord's house will consume me. That's from Isaiah. This is a very different Jesus. <laughs> he was just literally the life of the party. And in the next story John tells us, he, he goes into the temple and he, he looks around and, and this would not have been an unfamiliar scene. Um, Jesus would have been in the temple in this very same things going on for the last 30 years of his life. But something in this moment, something that was going on, stoked his anger, stoked his, his passion, and, and, and there's no other way to cut it. Some people try and soft soap this. Jesus was angry. This was not, the, the, the word passion here, it's, it's zeal, it's, ze, it's zealous, it's, it's jealousy. It's, it, it's used for. That same word is, is translated fierce or ferocious. Um, indignation. These are all the synonyms for, the, for this, the same word. Um, and, and then the, the, uh, it says this passion, it's, it's like a consuming fire was the example they, they gave in one of the definitions. Jesus was hot and, and, and not a little upset. He wasn't, now guys, he was livid. This is a very different side of Jesus. And Jesus comes into the temple and, and what he sees stokes all of this uh, ferocious, righteous, indignant fire. Quite the scene. This is somewhat random guy. Remember, he's not super famous yet, right? He, this is the beginning of his ministry. He comes in and, and he starts spilling the, the money and scattering, scattering these, these animals all over the place. But notice the control. I do want to point that out. It says uh, he, he, he takes the time, if you look at the verse, he takes the time to make a whip before he does it. And I always, I'd love to see that part of the scene, right? Where they walk in and Jesus is, sees what's going on and he's, and he's, 
he's angered and he's he's living. You can I'm sure you you, you see something, but he's with the disciples, and he just before he does or says anything, he goes over and he finds some ropes. And, you know, the disciples, I'm, they're always clueless, so I'm sure they're chatting about whatever, you know, they're all in a circle. And there's Jesus just, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. And then John and Peter, they're over here talking about something, you know, probably arguing, because that's what they did, and he's just, mm, yeah. And then he gets it done, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> he's flipping tables, he's chasing people out. This is a very different, an almost an opposite side of Jesus. What does this tell us about him? Well, for one, it, it, the big picture is it reveals Jesus' authority and his right to demand things from us. The entire universe was created through him. Jesus knows everything about everything. He has unlimited power and he has the right to ask anything of anyone at any time. That's all of the things from all of the people all of the time. <laughs> that, that is, that is a, a foundational reality of, of Jesus. If we're going to accept Jesus, if you're going to serve him, if you're going to follow him, if you're going to love him, you have to accept that part of him. That he has the right to demand it and he might. He, like there's a real possibility. There's nothing that he might not ask from you. A lot of times, you know, we, we kind of straddle this. We straddle, it's like, well, yeah, I, I totally get that he could, but thank God I serve a God that wouldn't, right? Oh, he might. There, there is nothing he might not ask from us. We're confronted with a God, with a Jesus that has actual standards and expectations of us. A Jesus that will get angry and tell you about it. He's not passive-aggressive. In this story, he's just aggressive-aggressive. A Jesus that is perfectly comfortable spilling your tea all over the table in public and then flipping the table on you. That's literally what he did, just to get your attention, just to make a point. Some of us struggle with this side of Jesus. We, we, we know or we, we, we are comfortable with the, the nice Jesus. The gentle Jesus. The wedding at Cana, make wine for me, Jesus. We want a Jesus that answers our prayer, but not necessarily one that holds us accountable. Some of us have this, and, and, and this happens for, for a number of reasons, and we all deal with this to some level. Um, but I do want to mention, I do think as I was putting this together, I felt like the Lord kind of wanted to highlight one one group that maybe struggles with this, some of us have a reflex when we see anger or strength being displayed. It, it's a trigger for us because we have experienced um, strength and unhealthy versions of anger that, that have spilled over into rage and we've experienced abuse because of it. And because of that, what happens is the enemy will then use that. So anytime we see uh, Jesus moving in that direction, we make this, this connection. And, and we're, we come to a point where we either have, to, either have to deny that that's God or accept the fact that Jesus is abusive. And I wanted to point that out, that, that Jesus is not abusive, that his, his anger, while he has it and it's ferocious, 
It is one, always justified, two, always tempered with his mercy, and three, like at the beginning while he made the rope, he is always in complete control. Jesus never loses his temper. And it's important that we we have to accept the fact that Jesus can get mad and and demand stuff of us, but it's not going to be in a self-serving, it's not an anger out of um, a desire to gain control because Jesus is never out of control. And that's really what uh, most abuse, especially like physical, verbal, the abuse comes from somebody who is um, willing to step out of bounds of healthy relationship in order to try and control something or someone or some circumstance. And God doesn't have to do that because he, he, well, he's never out of control, right? <laughs> we need to get comfortable with this side of Jesus because his whole intention in these times is, is to make us uncomfortable because that is a part of the growth process. If you want to be close to Jesus, if you want to be close to God, there is an element of you that should always be uncomfortable with him. It's called the fear of the Lord. Not afraid of him. We're not afraid of his motives. We're not afraid of, 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 of like, like we were just talking about, that, that he, he's out of control but just at the sheer immensity of him. You know, the closer you, you get to Jesus, the, the, the more, the harder it is to, to, to treat him casually. That's a good test of whether you're growing closer to God. Is your, is your fear of the Lord growing or shrinking? You know, um, I love in, in, um, in C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, his, his uh, Narnia trilogy, or their series, the, 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 the book Prince Caspian. Um, if you haven't read the books, they're great. Uh, but but the, the, they're kind of analogies of the Christian walk. And, and the main character, one of the main characters is this lion. He's the God figure, right? Aslan. And Lucy's one of the, the, the people, one of the kids that kind of represents us. And um, in Prince Caspian, she sees Aslan again. It's been a long time since she's seen him. And... and she looks at him and she says, Aslan, you're bigger than I remember. And Aslan looks at her and says, it's because you're older. The older you get, the bigger I get. That's how God is. The more we see of him, the larger he grows. So we should always, we need to learn to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because that's, that's a side of Jesus, that, that he wants to keep us in a place that is always in awe and wonder of his right and his size and his might. That's a, a part, a re- very real part of who he is. And this is just a, a random warning. Um, some of us, there are some of us, at least at times, that love this side of Jesus, that love the magnitude, that love the big, that love the, but the, and we think that that's a good thing, and it can be, but there can also be a time where the reason why we work so comfortable with, with that side of him is we apply it to everybody else except ourselves. We're not looking at this, this Jesus, this demanding, because we just, uh, we kind of have already assumed that we're fine. Right, And so when we see this big demanding God, we like it because he's going to go get all those guys out there. 
he's going to make sure you put them back in line, right? And that's not a good place to be. I'll, put, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. We'll get to that later when Jesus, when we see some more stories, Jesus interacts with some other people um, called Pharisees and he'll, he'll help us understand that later. But anyway, uh, uh, th- this side of Jesus isn't reserved for, for bad Christians or big sins, right? Th- this side of Jesus is true and, and, and all of us will be confronted on a regular basis or should be by this side of Jesus. You, you really want to get freaked out? You really want to have some help on this side? I, I can give it to you. Um, in, in answering kind of a question that this story poses, why was Jesus so mad? We talked about what happened, right? He, he walked in. Uh, we see at the beginning, verse 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus walks into to Jerusalem, into the temple. He saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, doves, sacrifices. He also saw dealers at, at the table exchanging foreign money. So this was a common thing he would have seen multiple times. Um, and there was perfectly good reasons why all this stuff was there. The Passover required a sacrifice. Um, people traveled from all around to come to, to, to Passover. And so there needed to, they couldn't always, they, it was too hard to bring their, their, their sacrifice with them. Um, so, so they would make at the, at the altar um, available sacrifices that you could, you could pay for, you could buy, um, and then go do your sacrifice. Well, there's that, but the problem is they're coming, they're foreign people, they're coming in, and the temple only took certain types of currency. They didn't, you know, there was a big kerfuffle about whether you should, any Jew should ever use even money that had, you know, Caesar's face on it or whatever. So, but to, so to buy the thing, you had to have the right monies, but they didn't have that, so you had this other group over here that was doing money exchanging, right? So you come in with your whatever, your Deutschmark or whatever, and they'd, they change it out for temple-approved currency, right? Um, so you'd go there, you get your money, you come over here, you get your lamb, and then you could offer your sacrifice. This was a common ad. Well, to understand, we actually have to go back to the first Passover because we're, that's, that's what, what Jesus sees, right? That's what's happening. And I think if we go back and we see the first one, we can compare the two, and, and I think it makes it, I think we can kind of see what, what Jesus was so angry about. And we find the first one in Exodus chapter 12, um, starting in verse 3. says, Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of, the, of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for, for a sacrifice. One animal for each household. If a family's too small uh, to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much it how much they eat. The animal you, you select must be a one-year-old man, either sheep or goat, with no defects. And he says in verse 6, take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the, this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They were to take some blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of their houses where they eat the animal. Let's look at some of the, some of the instructions in this first one. Uh, it says, 
take the animal into your home for four days. What's going to happen in four days? If, you, if you're a family, all right, if you have kids, what is going to happen if you take cute little one-year-old lamb into your house for four days? Your kids are going to name it. If you have a girl, they're going to put bows in its hair. The boys are going to ride it. They're going to bond with this thing. It says you have to feed it. You have to select the best one. You had to go through and you had to, you had to pick that one out. So all these other, I'm going to examine all these sheep and I'm going to pick the right one. I'm going to take it home. I'm going to take care of it for four days. And my kids are going to name it. And then after four days, the whole assembly, the family, everybody has to go. And they have to slaughter this lamb. That's a very different picture than what we see when Jesus walks in. Notice the difference. Jesus walks in and it looks like a DMV. Just lines. You just come in, you go over here, you go, you go through this line, get your money, go over here, go through this line, get your thing, go over here, go through this line, slaughter it, out you go. Their worship had become so efficient, it was no longer effective. Because they had lost the whole point. They were having McChurch. Literally, Jesus was fired up because they were completely missing the point and they had no idea that the whole point of this festival, the whole point of this, this, this sacrifice system was to, to, to create a scenario to do these things to create um, connection to what was happening. Jesus is going, this lamb is supposed to represent me. I am the lamb. He knows this. I am the lamb. We need, and for, for the festival to be, uh, to, for the worship to be meaningful, it had to cost something. There had to be a real connection there. There had to be a sacrifice involved. Yeah, that, that wasn't going to do it. They had to focus themselves on this lamb. The whole point of it was that they get attached so that it, it, it cost something, so that they could understand the, the nature of this sacrifice. This is a scary sh thought that should give us pause. Is my worship intentional? Does it cost me something? Have I made it something that is predictable and, and comfortable and convenient to the exclusion of being uh, effective, to the exclusion of being something that actually honors God? And listen, the point of this message is not Worship better so you can have a nice water to wine Jesus. That's not the point. The point is to wonder at who Jesus is. That he is both the Lord of nature that will turn water to wine because he loves you and just wants to bless you. And he is the Lord of the whip that will flip your table if you don't take him seriously.
The point of the message is that you can't control which way Jesus decides to come to you. It's just to bring a question. Are you willing and able to receive him in whatever way he comes? I'm running out of time, but real quickly, I just want to give you a couple, two thoughts, a couple of thoughts on, on how do we be ready for this? How do you be prepared for a God that's so, so big, so can come at you from all these different angles? A couple of, couple of thoughts. First, accept that both and everything Jesus does is out of love. Whether it's nice or it's scary, it's still love. And if it's, if it's nice, if it's a blessing, if, 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 if it's something good, if it's, if it's wine that he's giving you, understand that you didn't earn it. And if it's hard and it's scary, understand that he's not rejecting you, he's calling you closer. Jesus didn't turn those tables because he was trying to punish the people. He turned those tables because he was trying to get their attention. Because he wanted them closer. He wanted them to worship him properly. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was, he wasn't trying to hurt them. He was trying, literally trying to save them. So we have to accept that both and everything he does is out of love. Two, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see the, the parts of Jesus that we miss. Because it's only by his revelation that we can even see these things. And then finally, there's three things that I think just practical little ideas that can help us, I think, sometimes see some of our blind spots. I'm just giving it to you. It'll take me two minutes, and then I'm going to pray. Um, first one is signs that Jesus might be confronting us on a certain aspect or idea. Um, and the first one is, sorry, it's just the way it came in, into my brain. Watch your butts. What do I mean by that? I, I mean, watch when you're listening or receiving or thinking about something or even in this message, where does your brain automatically start with but? I'm telling the story. We're talking about how Jesus is, is, is full of blessing and loves and, and responds to our requests. Is your, is your response, is the narration in your mind start with the word but? da 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 Right, that can be a sign that we're we're dismissive of that side, that we're avoiding that reality. Or if I'm talking about Jesus that turns over tables, is is it is it a you know? But but Jesus is the other way too. Like we're just always trying to run back to the other side. Let that be an indicator, something that can give us a clue that maybe we need to sit in this a little bit. Why am I doing that? Why can't I just appreciate this truth for what it is? Why am I uncomfortable with it? Second one is um, attention fade. Some of us are, are, are avoiders. Any avoiders in the house like me? Um, uh, where, where, where we're confronted with something, uh, a part of Jesus, and, and we, just, we just lose attention. We just lose focus. We just, I'm just going to be distracted. Let ourselves get distracted and think about just kind of tune out. And then the third one is, is um, just an emotional shift, you know? Uh, when you're hearing, uh, when you're reading about Jesus acting certain ways and someone's telling you a story from their life about, about you know, what God's doing or whatever, what, what emotions is that action bringing up? You know, are you, um, does it make you, is this 
thing making you angry? Is it making you scared? Is it making you happy? Is it making you, um, you know, is it bringing you peace? How we feel about what we're hearing is a good indication about what we actually think about what we're hearing. And it's helpful if we, we, we pay attention to those things. So Jesus is confronting us all with different sides of them. And this is just two. We're going to see many more as, as the weeks go on. Um, I'm going to close in, in just a word of prayer. And if you would, just if, if your prayer is with me, that, that, that you would open yourself up to, and be willing to admit that, man, there are parts of Jesus that I just really struggle to accept. That there, there, there are sides to him that are, 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 I, I just I, I avoid or I just outright deny. We can ask the Holy Spirit. That's the beautiful thing. The answer is still the same, <laughs> whatever the issue is. We go up to Jesus, and he's, he's the revealer. He's the healer. He's the one that actually can, can bring us to more wholeness in our understanding of who he is. So, Father, we, we, we give you this morning. God, we thank you, that, again, that your presence was so felt. We thank you for your word that, that confronts us with, with who you are. God, thank you for being... Um, Bigger than our understanding. Thank you for being, well, being God. And Lord, we, we, we lay our, our pride down and we, 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 we say we accept the fact that you are bigger than our comprehension. Like the, the man Jesus met, we say we believe, help us in our unbelief. Holy Spirit, would you show us in our hearts those areas that we maybe wouldn't admit it with words or even to our own thoughts, but in our hearts we, we deny that side of you. For fear of uh, for fear or a misshapen idea of what that is, what your anger looks like, we, we deny the fact that you are you are a demanding God that has the right to ask anything of us. Or out of a desire to, to earn and, and, and make our own way, our own pride, we, 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 we avoid the fact that you are just a ridiculously gracious God that gives us good things and every good thing we have is just because you have decided to bless us with it, not because we've earned it. We love you, Jesus. As we walk out this week, would you continue to minister to us? Would you continue to, to work, work these conversations in us and through us so that we can, we can know you more, we can serve you better, and we can become more and more like you. Amen. Amen. God bless. See you next week.